Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek this morning. And we are excited that you are here. If you have your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them out and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark. And this time we're turning the corner, going to chapter 11. And the excitement is building. And I want you to know the excitement needs to be building because we are heading into the last third of the gospel. And, and what's interesting is that from chapter 11, stretching all the way through through chapter 16 of Mark's gospel, we're going to see a little bit of a change. And what that means is, is that the first 10 chapters have, have spread across the first three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. As we turn and start looking at chapter 11 and, and all the way through the end, we're looking at the final days of Jesus' life. Fully a third of Mark's gospel is devoted to the last days of Jesus' life. And so we're going to see the pace of Mark's gospel slow down from what we've been seeing. And, and so we're going, to, we're going to turn that corner and begin that direction this morning. We're going to notice something else different as we begin looking in Mark chapter 11 today. Something that becomes particularly uh, obvious to us when we look at this very first passage in this chapter. You, you might recall that as we have looked through Mark's gospel now for over a year and we've been examining it paragraph by paragraph, you'll remember that there have been certain paragraphs where we've come across certain instances where we've seen that Jesus, Jesus seemingly wanted to keep his identity and his power from being known to everybody around him. As a matter of fact, in the very opening chapter, Jesus is, is, has just healed a, a, a number of, of people who were demon-possessed. And in that opening chapter, after having done that, he looks at them and Mark says he did not allow the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew him. In other words, Jesus wanted to keep his identity concealed. Later in that very same chapter, Jesus heals a man who had leprosy. And following that leper being healed from that, Jesus gave him strict orders telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone. In other words, what we read is that Jesus desired to keep his identity and his power secret. Then again, in chapter 3, again, Jesus healed a, a bunch of people with unclean spirits. And, and Mark tells us that when the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out saying, You are the Son of God, but Jesus sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And then you'll also remember in chapter 8, Peter confessed boldly when Jesus wanted to know who is it that men say that I am. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter openly confessed, you are the Christ. And as soon as he said that, Jesus gave strict orders to Peter and the rest of the disciples that they should tell no one about him. Now, in those previous studies that we have looked at in Mark's gospel, we discussed the various reasons for why Jesus wanted to conceal his identity. And I don't, I'm not going to spend time chasing all of that down for you this morning. I will give you one word that I think though sort of summarizes the reason why Jesus did that. It's kind of hard for us to understand why Jesus would do that on this side of the cross and this many years later. But before the cross, before the time that Jesus had come, we can summarize why he concealed his identity with one word. Timing. Timing. Jesus had divine timing. That was, that was driving him to do what he did when he did it. And there were also, the timing did not yet lend itself 
for him to reveal everything about himself until the right time had come. You see, what we understand is the first 10 chapters of Mark that get right up to where we are today, Jesus kept things concealed. But beginning here in chapter 11, I want you to know that the secret ends. In fact, Jesus begins to clearly manifest himself as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But even so, what becomes equally obvious is that those who are following him, and as we'll see today, those who lined the roads that he traveled into Jerusalem, those who were crying out, singing their messianic praises to him, still didn't truly recognize him as the Messiah, the true Messiah. They still didn't recognize the purpose for why he came. And as such, though this passage that we're going to look at this morning, even here in my Bible, it's got, the, it's got the, the moniker over the top of it, the triumphal entry. Even though that's what we likely know it as, many scholars have said because the, the people who were crying out and doing all these things didn't truly know who Jesus was, it might rather be known as the tragic in, entry. So with that as an introduction and to kind of set the stage this morning, let's read the first 11 verses of chapter 11 this morning. Hear the word of God. Mark writes, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone asks you or says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, why are you, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the ground, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, as we come before you this morning as a people, your sheep of your pasture, we long to hear your voice. We pray that your voice would speak clearly to us this morning and that we would hear you and that we would identify you and that we would be able to follow you. I ask that your word would come alive to us this morning. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and wisdom to understand what your word is speaking to us. And I pray that you would bring conviction into our hearts, into our lives. Help us to see you for who you truly are, not, 
not the one that sometimes we may make you out to be. I pray that you would do a work in us that would bring glory to you and good into our lives. And I pray this in the strong and mighty and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing about this passage I want to draw your attention to is the geographical information and the the change in location from where we were last week. Last week, we were on the road right outside of Jericho. Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus. I told you at that point that that town was about between 16 and 18 miles from Jerusalem, but it was straight downhill from Jerusalem. There was about a 3,500 foot rise that had to happen from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so now we find at the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus and all the disciples who are around him have made that trek. And they have come now to the precipice of entering into Jerusalem. And they come to these two little towns that are described here for us, Bethpage and Bethany. Uh, Jesus would have come to Bethany first. It was about two miles outside Jerusalem. He would have come there first. And as he made his way through, uh, through Bethany, he would have come around the south side of the Mount of Olives. And then from there, he would have passed through this little hamlet, this little village of Bethpage before entering Jerusalem from the east. Mark's narrative picks up with what is happening with while Jesus is either still in Bethany or he has just left Bethany and he is waiting to go into Bethpage. That's where we find ourselves. And notice from what Mark tells us, Jesus takes charge of everything that is happening beginning here. He is in control of the events that will transpire from this point forward. Notice what Mark tells us. Jesus takes charge. And in fact, what I want to point out to you is that this passage breaks down into three parts. And the first part really is the action of Jesus. And that's what I want to direct your attention to from verses 1 through 6. And I provided you really a a sentence that gives a description of what we're going to see take place. And so the very first point on your outline this morning is just simply the sentence that describes what's happening. And it's this. Jesus' orchestrated entry is characterized by purposeful action. Jesus' orchestrated entry into Jerusalem is is characterized by his purposeful action. The the terms that I want to draw your attention to there are very simple. His, His orchestrated entry and purposeful action. The reason that I put it that way is because I want you to notice what Jesus does. The first thing that he does is that he sends two of his disciples who are unnamed in this text... He sends them into this little village, this little hamlet of Bethpage. And he tells them, he says, go into that village. And as soon as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied. A colt that no one else has ever ridden on. And I want you to untie that coat. I want you to loose it. And I want you to bring it to me. And if anybody, the owners, anyone else standing there asks you why you're doing it, you tell them that the Lord has need of it and they're going to let you go. And that you'll send it, that it's going to come here. So the disciples... Go into this little hamlet and do exactly what Jesus said. And guess what? They find exactly what Jesus said they would find. They find this colt, this colt of a donkey that's tied up there in this exact spot that Jesus gave them. And they begin to untie it. And sure enough, there comes the owners going, hey, what are you doing? Are you, are you, stealing, are you stealing my colt? And they said, the, the master, the Lord has need of it. And so they let, they let them go and take the colt away back to Jesus. And this is really an amazing little passage if you think about it. If you truly consider what happens here, it kind of makes you want to stop and go, how'd he know? I mean, how did Jesus know? He hadn't entered Bethpage yet. He's on the outskirts of Bethany. How did he know 
where that coat was going to be? How did he know it was going to be tied up there? How did he know the question that was going to be asked by the owners? How did he know this? What's interesting is that we don't, we don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. Neither does Matthew, neither does Luke, neither does John, all of whom describe Jesus riding a colt of a donkey into Jerusalem. None of them give us any indication as to exactly how Jesus known it. Now, most scholars, many of them, will point to the fact that this is a display of Jesus' omniscience. They argue that since Jesus had not yet entered Bethpage, the only way that he would have known where that colt was that had never been ridden, the only way that he would have known that it was tied to a specific spot was if he had divine knowledge and the ability to see things that mere mortals cannot see. Quite honestly, I find that answer to be as compelling as any that there are. As I think absolutely Jesus had the ability to understand and know things with his divine knowledge that those around him did not know. Others say, though, Jesus had been in and around the area of Bethany, though Mark has not told us this, John does. You might recall that Lazarus has been raised from the dead by this point, and Lazarus had been raised in Bethany. And so Jesus, his, with Lazarus and Martha and Mary, his sisters, Jesus, those were his close friends. And so he had connections in and around this area. And so some propose that Jesus had made connections with people who lived in Bethpage and had set this whole thing up. And, and I think that is off. off. Also plausible, it could have very well happened. Here's the thing, the text doesn't tell us, and if we try to make too much out of it, we may miss the point of what the text is telling us. Here's, what, here's the issue, it should be noted, is that observing what has transpired in this passage, we see that Jesus is fully in charge of everything that's taking place. He's in charge of orchestrating the action that is unfolding. Furthermore, we recognize that prophecy was being fulfilled right before the eyes of all of those who were following him on that road and anyone who would care to pay attention. Some of the ways that that is happening has is, is been noted by various scholars. R.T. France, for one, he notes that in the Old Testament, animals that had never been put into official service, animals that had never been ridden or broken, those animals held a special place, particularly in religious service. Give you a few examples. You can go home and look this up. Numbers chapter 19, verse 2. Deuteronomy 21, verse 3. 1 Samuel 6, verse 7. You will see where unbroken, un, previously unused animals held high esteem in the Old Testament. And therefore recognize that this young donkey... This donkey's colt, upon whom no one had ever written, held special value on this particular day. Second, many scholars will also point out that, that the untying of this donkey held particular messianic interest. Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11, you're welcome to go look that up as well, is a messianic passage. It's a less well-known one, but it's a one that talks about how the untying of the colt actually being done by the disciples here was a messianic sign. Although it is highly doubtful that the disciples recognized that that's what they were doing at the time, yet still true. But the third and really the, the, the plainest prophecy fulfilled by what we read here is what Matthew tells us explicitly. Mark does not, but it's still true that in Zechariah 9 verse 9 we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. So what becomes evident is that in orchestrating things the way that he did, Jesus demonstrated purposeful action that was designed to unveil his true identity to everybody. As Kent Hughes writes, he says, Never before had Jesus done anything to promote a public demonstration. In fact, he had repeatedly withdrawn from the crowds if there was any hint of this. But now he invited it. He courted danger and did it with calculated purpose. King Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he rode a donkey into Jerusalem to fulfill the great Old Testament messianic prophecies and identify himself with the royal line of Judah. One last thing I would point you to with regard to what happens here, and that is in coming into town, into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, just as Zechariah had prophesied, Jesus was also proclaiming the kind of Messiah that he would be. Zechariah says that he was lowly, that he was humble, riding on a donkey. And what we might say is that unlike what we might expect a king to do, riding a large white steed, a war horse into town, or, or coming into town in a stretch black limo, or maybe riding a, a, a huge army tank striding on top of that, that's the way we might expect a king to come into town. Jesus does just the opposite. He comes in in peace. He comes to bring peace to our war-torn world. In fact, Jesus says this of himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your soul. To quote Hughes once more, he says, Jesus is unlike any other king who has ever lived. He was in control of every detail that day as he came riding the donkey with perfectly portray, which perfectly portrayed his position as Messiah and his person, the Prince of Peace, humble and gentle. So that's the first thing that I want you to note about what happens here at the beginning of chapter 11. Jesus demonstrates that he is orchestrating the events surrounding his entry into Jerusalem with purposeful action in order to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies concerning him, his person, and his position. And then that then moves us to verses 7 through 9, excuse me, 7 through 10, in which we look at the response of the people. In fact, note the next point on your outline this morning. In verses 7, in verses 7 through 10, we read this, the, the crowd's enthusiastic response is characterized by passionate anticipation. Here's the key terms in that sentence. Enthusiastic response, passionate anticipation. As we noted in the first point, that's, that's, that's the way that we begin to understand what's happening. Notice that, that the people, they take their, their clothes, their outer garments, their cloaks off, and they lay it over the top of the donkey, sort of as a makeshift saddle. They want to make the ride for Jesus as comfortable as possible. And have, not having a saddle on a, on a donkey that had never been ridden, the, their, their outer garments made it the, the best possible scenario they had. And so they laid their, their, their clothes on the, on, on the donkey, and Jesus gets on it and begins to ride, which, by the way, is the only time in all the New Testament that we read of Jesus riding an animal here in this particular moment. 
But as they lay their clothes on the, on the donkey, many who are there and there's a multitude following realize, well, they didn't get an opportunity to do that. So what do they do? They begin to shed their clothes and take their outer garments off and lay it on the dirty ground so that the, the animal upon which Jesus is riding, never his feet don't touch the dirt. They just walk on the clothes of other people who continue to pick them up and then run in front of them and lay them down again for Jesus' donkey to walk over the top of it. And then those who didn't have clothes to be able to do that with, what did they do? They went and pulled down branches off of trees, green leafy branches in order to lay that down. In other words, they were doing this out of respect and reverence of Jesus and they wanted to give him the equivalent of a, of a red carpet ticker tape parade. You can see where this actually happens again previously in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 9 verse 13. So in many respects, Jesus even in this is fulfilling the fact that he's king. Consider what such a gesture... I mean, we don't do stuff like that in our culture. What would such a gesture communicate? If, if one is coming down the road riding a horse and we decide that we want to take our clothes, our outer coats off and lay it down so that the horse treads on top of our clothes. Well, at the very least, that communicates reverence, doesn't it? Communicates an understanding and respect a willingness to give what you have to one who deserves it, to one who is worthy of it. But notice it does not, that the response of the people is not just a physical response. There's also a verbal response that comes. They begin to cry out. They begin to shout to him. They begin to shout out these things that Mark tells us here. He says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I, I, I really believe that what you see here is a, an A-B-B-A pattern of, of this antiphonal praise. The people before and the people behind would shout out to one another. One group would shout out, Hosanna! And the group behind would shout out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the group in the front would then say, Well, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. And then the group behind would say, Blessed, Hosanna in the highest. And it would just go back and forth. One of those lines is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're probably from most familiar with that line. It actually is a chorus that we sing a lot of times. That, that, that line is included in it and we sing it. But it actually has its origin in Psalm 118 verse 26. It was often used as a, as a, a way to greet people who were coming into the city of Jerusalem for these, for these high and these holy festivals such as Passover. It was, a, it was a greeting, much like we might say, uh, hey, how are you? Uh, uh, good morning. This was a greeting that was between Hebrews as they would greet one another in the holy city. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some people have even suggested that when, when the folks were, were crying this out, that they really were just crying out a, uh, something to Jesus that was a, 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 a greeting and not really a, a matter of praise. But I think... I think it's, it's probably more of a praise because I doubt there were anyone else who were riding a donkey going into Jerusalem. I doubt there was anyone else that people were laying their clothes down in front of. In fact, Luke even tells us that when, when they were crying, they were saying this, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Furthermore, John tells us that the people inside Jerusalem heard of Jesus' coming, and so they went and took palm branches, which were, had become by this point the national symbol of, of, of Israel. They took those palm branches in their hands, and they went out waving them, saying, Come, Hosanna, save us, come save us. So the scene 
that we get, particularly from Mark, but if we combine the other pictures that we get from the other gospel writers, is one in which we recognize that the people are responding with enthusiasm and excitement as Jesus has mounted this donkey and he comes riding into Jerusalem. There is an air of expectancy. There's an air of anticipation. The frenzy of the crowd, the cries of the people communicate that, that this Jesus is one in whom they were longing for. It was one that they were hoping for. They were hoping for a king. And yet, as the events of this week will go on to show, and as the events of our study in Mark's gospel will go on to show, and as this text here in Mark chapter 11 goes on to show, Jesus obviously was not the kind of Messiah. He was not the kind of king that these people were longing and hoping for. We get a very clear hint of that by something that Luke tells us. In Luke chapter 19, verse 37, we read that the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. What that revelation seems to indicate is that at least for many their approval and their, their praise of Jesus was based upon the benefits that he was able to provide. In other words, since Jesus had performed previous miracles, since he'd done previous mighty works, they expected him to continue to do that. Furthermore, as the waving of the palm branches demonstrate to us, the, the Hebrews were expecting a, a here and now king to come into Jerusalem to rule over Jerusalem. They, they wanted one who was going to, to, to defeat Rome and to vindicate Israel, and they were going to reestablish the Davidic dynasty and provide eventual peace and prosperity to the people. Sure, Jesus came into town riding on a donkey, but the people were expecting a reversal of his fortune. They were expecting him to, to, to be able to perform his miracles and do mighty things for them. They wanted Jesus to flex his muscle. And they wanted him to do it in such a way that they might, he might bring back the glory Israel had once known and to drive the Romans to drown all the way in the Mediterranean. So yes, the people wanted a Messiah. They, wanted, they were ready to worship Jesus as that Messiah, but only if he was the kind of Messiah they were looking for. Which brings us, brings us to verse 11. Let me read it for you once more. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Has anyone ever told you of a restaurant that you should go eat, that it was so good that you would like, it, it's just the best stuff, the bread melts in your mouth, the, the, it's, the, it's just the best place to go in the world, and you get excited about it and you say, Tell your wife or your husband, you know what, we need to get dressed up one night and go out there. I believe this will be a great place to eat. And you do that and you get all dressed up and you go out there and you got all these big expectations. And you get there and then you're like, ah, man, I ain't never listened to Todd Bevel again. I'm... <laughs> Maybe it's a movie somebody has written and told you that it was a great movie to go see and you went and paid your money and bought a ticket and went back in and you come out and you go, that's two hours of my life I will never get back. <laughs> you know, I think that in our language we, we understand this. We have, we have a way of describing that. It's called being let down. It's called being disappointed. We might even say it this way. Things started off with promise but it had an anticlimactic ending. 
For the multitudes gathered around Jesus, I imagine that verse 11 is a lot like that. Think about it. Jesus had orchestrated his entrance into Jerusalem with all this purposeful action so that he could unmistakably prove that he was truly the Messiah. The people, they had responded with enthusiasm and excitement. They showed their passionate anticipation about what all he was going to do. But then Jesus gets to Jerusalem. And notice, he doesn't go into the temple and stand behind a podium. And he doesn't begin to make some long, lavish speech about his platform and about his politics and about his promises. He doesn't go and confront the Roman leadership about their impending doom. He doesn't raise an army. He doesn't call upon God to use a lightning bolt to strike down his enemies. No, Mark says that he goes to the temple, observes what's going on there, and then leaves going back the exact same way he had just walked, traveling the exact same path two miles back up the same road to Bethany. David Garland writes this. He said, Mark raises the reader's expectations that something grand will happen, but nothing does. For many... That may have been the most anticlimactic thing that Jesus could have done. In fact, the point has been made repeatedly that by doing what he did, and really we might say this, by not doing the things that the people thought that he would do, Jesus created a mess for himself. You see, Jesus' actions probably caused many to question his intention. The crowd had expected a man of action, but instead most, most of them probably perceived Jesus to be a man of inaction. But brothers and sisters, they could not have been more wrong. Mark tells us that when Jesus went to look around the temple, I want you to know he wasn't going there as a tourist. He wasn't going there to be in awe of all the gold that was overlaid over all the white marble. He wasn't going there to be inspired by all the things that he saw there. Jesus also did not go to the temple as a worshiper. Do you notice that he didn't go there to sacrifice anything. He didn't offer any prayers. He says that he went there to look around. We are not told of anything else that Jesus did except that he went there to look. And I want you to know, though, what went unnoticed by all the crowds and what likely went unnoticed by everybody within the temple walls was the fact that Jesus was once again fulfilling prophecy. Malachi chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2 said this, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. You see, based upon what Malachi writes and from what happens the very next day that we'll get to, in our continued study of this gospel, we know that Jesus enters the temple not as a tourist, not as a worshiper, but as the Lord. And when he comes, he comes to inspect it. And the Bible tells us that rather than restoring it, Jesus pronounces God's judgment upon it. Therefore, I don't believe for one second that the anticlimactic ending to this day is characterized by Jesus' inaction. No, Rather, I believe 
that it is characterized by something else altogether. Note the last point on your outline this morning. The third point is simply this. The day's anticlimactic ending is characterized by the people's absence. You remember at the end of chapter 10, Jesus was surrounded by a great multitude of people as he made his way to Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that a great multitude of people laid their clothes down for the donkey to ride over the top of. John tells us that a great multitude went out from the city of Jerusalem to meet Jesus, waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna. But here, according to Mark's gospel, the day ends with Jesus in relative solitude, surrounded by only his 12 disciples. He's still the Messiah. He's still fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning himself. Yet there are no more shouts of accolades. There's no more red carpet treatment. No more ticker tape parade. My question is, where's the crowd? Where's the people? Where, where are the multitudes who were so ready to crown him king? The obvious answer is they're gone. Mark tells us the day was late. People were gone home. Well, let me ask you something. If you truly believed that Jesus was the Messiah if you truly believe that he had the power and the authority to do all the things that the promised Messiah would do, would you leave him? Here's the thing. I believe that the multitudes had ideas and expectations for what Jesus was going to do. That Jesus, even after he had triumphantly demonstrated that he was the Messiah, he didn't live up to their expectations. In fact... What we learn is that the kingdom that Jesus came to establish was not the kind of kingdom that the people were wanting. It's not the kind of kingdom they were looking for. To many in the crowd who lined the streets trying to get close to Jesus, to the religious leaders who were there serving inside the temple, to, to as we will come to see, one of his very own friends with whom he traveled. Jesus failed to meet their expectations. They were looking for something different than what Jesus offered. These folks weren't so interested in a Messiah with a spiritual kingdom, in one who would provide forgiveness for sins and who would be Lord over every aspect of their personal lives. That wasn't who they were looking for. That's, that is not what they were expecting. And that is why we read that within a week, the shouts of Hosanna were replaced by shouts of crucify him. That understanding then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is a sermon in a sentence built around application. And so that's why I've stated it the way that I have. My sermon in a sentence this morning is this. When we fervently worship a Messiah, little m, who we believe should fulfill our agendas and bring us comfort and prosperity, we fail to recognize the true Messiah, capital M, who gave his life for others and calls us to surrender and follow him. Brothers and sisters, understand this. We can give ourselves to worship of someone who is not the God of the Bible. We can name his name. We can use all the right terminology, but we will have created someone that the scriptures do not testify to and the Bible says will not save you. 
In his commentary on this passage, Jeff Thomas brings up what you'll recall when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. He, Mark doesn't tell us this, but, but we find that, that Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and he wept. And he wept openly over it. And what Jeff Thomas writes, he says this, it was the awful reality of unbelief and the terrible horror of the judgment that follows it that brought the tears to Jesus' eyes and made him shudder with sobs. And he goes on to make this point. He says the very people who were cheering were precisely the same people who would have nothing to do with him the moment that they discovered the kind of person he really was. They wanted Christ to be their king, but they also wanted Jesus to shape up to what they thought a king should be and do. They were in no mood whatsoever to believe that his kingship would become a reality only along the road of suffering. They were not willing to admit that they could receive the benefits of his kingship only if they would bow before him in confession of sin. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. That is what the scriptures teach. That is the foundation of the gospel. The foundation of Christ's church is built upon the knowledge that sinners acknowledge their sin and that they acknowledge that, that Jesus Christ came to heal them of their sin and to redeem them from their sin. True Messiahship is based upon the fact that Christ came not to make our lives easy, not to advance our own personal agendas, not to remove the path of suffering and create for us a path of prosperity and happiness. No, true Messiahship recognizes that Jesus Christ came to save us by giving His life, by dying a cruel death without which not a one of us would ever see heaven. Jesus Christ died to bring sinners to glory. And he did so by sacrificing himself for all who will believe in him. And the Bible says that all who will, will live. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you and I must recognize that we do not honor Christ regardless of how enthusiastic and how excitedly we may worship if we honor a false understanding of Him. Rather, we only honor Christ when we plead His cross as the only grounds for our hope and when we seek His power to live humbly and meekly in a world that does not comprehend Him. You and I must guard our hearts against doing what this disappearing multitude did. We must guard ourselves against misunderstanding the Messiah. Instead, we must humble ourselves before the one who has identified himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the one who will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Because brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.